Most Reverend Father, the Church of Chum requests that you ordain the priest, Joseph Conan, for the office of bishop. Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. The making of a new bishop is always a matter of joy, of importance to the church. But the ordination of the priest Joseph Cunyan to the office of Archbishop of Tuam last Monday was an occasion of particular interest for, I think, two reasons. First, because of something new and up to now rare in Catholic practice, but which since the Second Vatican Council is becoming more common, that is, a bishop retiring from his see and handing on the office to his successor. And secondly, because for the first time in this country the new rite of episcopal ordination was used, a rite simpler, clearer and more meaningful than that which had been in use for centuries and had perhaps suffered some of the distortions and uh, accretions inevitable over such a long passage of time. In Tuam Cathedral, the new service was introduced to the people and commented upon by Father J.G. McGarry of Maynooth, himself a priest of the Archdiocese. And I asked him to introduce it to us now with a word about the office of bishop itself in the Church of today. Well, it's quite clear that it was the will of our Lord that there should be always bishops in the Church and that their function was essential for the life and continuance of the church. The bishop is a centre of government, but he's also a centre of unity, and he's a centre of growth. Now, his functions will vary in, in the manner of its exercise from age to age. We don't have any longer prince bishops or people like that who exercise power. And I would like to just dwell on some aspects of the bishop's life in the contemporary church. It seems to me that the function of a bishop today is in accordance with our notions of democracy and participation and freedom and people's rights, the desire to involve lay people more in the life of the church. They are the church, of course. It seems to me that the role of the bishop, according to the will of the church, is rather somewhat different from what would have been a century ago. He is a leader, of course. He's a father in God. But he's also a stimulator, and he will have a rather different task from what 
uh, bishop a century ago, Archbishop Conyan is going to have a rather different job from John McHale. No less concern from his people, of course, than that uh, great bishop had, um, certainly, but it will be exercised in a different way. People are more educated, for one thing. They're more involved in political life. They have their own freedom. They are aware of themselves as the people of God. The beautiful ceremony at Chum illustrated a lot of that. Let me give you an example. Uh, recently, a Canadian bishop, a very distinguished man who has brought his own people in a remarkable way into this life of the church, uh, Bishop Emmett Carter, said this. He says, life is spent either in consultations or in dialogue or in meetings. What could have been done with the stroke of a pen ten years ago now takes endless hours of debate. It may be the better way, but it is not conducive either to studying or to writing. Now, I'm sure it is the better way. It's the way better suited to our time. And uh, it would involve the bishop in consultation with his priests, in hearing their opinions, and, of course, hearing the lay people equally. One ancient figure from St. Ignatius of Antioch is memorable in describing the relations of a bishop with his priest. He says, the harp and its strings. And I think it would be wrong to think of a unity that excluded the laity. It's not merely a Presbyterium, a, un a relationship of bishop and priests, but a relationship of bishops and priests open to the service of the people. Now, I said that the principle that the bishop is a principle of growth and of unity. Of unity, I think he has a particular task here, because as we're all aware, there is a certain, certain great differences emerging between the generations because of the pace of change. I think a bishop must try to be, nobody can achieve this wholly, of course, he must try to be a figure of charity, who understands the desires and the necessary tensions between these people and is a kind of point of resolution. I think also he must be a, a, a principle of growth. Uh, we don't any longer believe that uh, one simply waits for a direction from the bishops, the stroke of the pen that Bishop Carter talked about, to do this or to do that. He listens willingly to his people, as the charge to the new bishop said. And he seeks out their opinions, and he welcomes their suggestions. And he is open and watchful and helpful and stimulating. Now, the word father is perhaps a little bit misunderstood now, but I think a bishop is truly a father, not a paternalist figure, but just as a father is very anxious to encourage his children and um, ready to make allowances for them, not demanding too much of their first efforts, stimulating, encouraging, helping them when they are in difficulties. I think a bishop has got that task too. It really all amounts to this, that he is to be in the contemporary scene, he is to be a figure of charity. A good shepherd that doesn't imply anything of the um, dirigism or the uh, intolerance or authoritarianism that's sometimes associated with that figure. He's not helping the lazy ones on with the stick, of course, but uh, he's a true figure of charity. After all, the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep, and the bishop has got to do it maybe in an exhausting fatigue of a routine day. Praise to the Lord.
as the entry hymn, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, was sung, the procession of clergy entered the cathedral and moved up the aisle to take their places in the sanctuary. A newly remodelled sanctuary, designed for the shape of the new, or better, renewed liturgy, but not distorting the shape of the cathedral itself, which was built in the early days of emancipation by the voluntary contributions of all Christian denominations, as we're reminded by a plaque at the cathedral door. Around the simple altar table, there are chairs for the bishops who have come from all over Ireland to take part in the rite. Simple, beautiful chairs of a traditional design, executed in tuum, and sometimes, if not quite accurately called, tuum chairs. And for the archbishop, replacing the old throne, another chair, a little, but only a little, more elaborate than the rest. Here, in the first part of the rite, the archbishop, the outgoing archbishop, Joseph Welsh, sits to perform his last, the last liturgical function of his office. The archbishop-elect sits before the altar. And there are also special chairs for the President of Ireland and the Cardinal Primate of Armagh, who sit on each side of the sanctuary. The congregation in the main body of the church includes representatives of the government and local bodies and of the 56 parishes of the Archdiocese of Tuam, an area extending from Roscommon to the Aran Islands. The ordination rite takes place in the framework of the Mass and the liturgical action is entirely in the people's language, or rather languages. The epistle appointed for St. Patrick's Day is read in Irish by a layman, Cullum, O'Callaghan, who represents the Archdiocese on the new National Council for the Lay Apostolate. An cat, Evrorwe, is this an Greek creature who fear entity? Is this an male a yenter odal and slanihe? Mar jeren scriptur, an cheir regisan nivaishe biog uktul. Yeleni der yalla ider an yuda agus an grega. Mar ases an cheir ni kene athar or fad. Agustasha <laughs> A hogan lodger scale and a fearer. Ach ni he hilagine gayer than such scale. Now will she rotig I say is. I hear a cake red or vinisher. Marshin is on Jeskela at Lester Hoggis Credit. I was on Jeskela at Lester Hoggins Shetra of Rehe Christ. Ach Jerem, Baden or Hulishid, Huli Kincher, Lahaglora Matra got cheer. I was a walker got you cree and down. A reading as appropriate to this occasion as to the feast.
After the Gospel, also read in Irish by a priest from one of the Connemara parishes, the actual rite of ordination begins with the ancient invocation to the Holy Spirit, Veni Creator Spiritus. Spiritus. bishops present take part in the rite, but the principal consecrator is Archbishop Walsh, joined on behalf of the others by Archbishop Morris of Cashel and Bishop Fergus of Aconry. As we heard at the beginning of this program, one of the priests of the Church of Chuam requests that the priest Joseph Conan be ordained for the office of bishop. The apostolic mandate from Rome is read and agreed to by the people with the acclamation, thanks be to God. And then Archbishop Walsh briefly addresses the clergy, people and the bishop-elect 
on the duties of a bishop. My dearly beloved people, consider carefully the position in the church to which our brother is about to be promoted. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father to redeem the human race, sent in turn 12 apostles into the world. These men were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit so that they might preach the word of God and gather every race and people into a single flock to be guided and governed in the way of holiness. But their role was to continue to the end of time. So the apostles selected helpers for themselves and passed on to them the gift of the Holy Spirit they had received from Christ by an imposition of hands which confers the sacrament of orders in its fullness. In that way, by a succession of bishops unbroken from one generation to the next, the powers conferred in the beginning were handed down and the work of the Savior lives and grows in our own time. In the person of the bishop surrounded by his priests, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is high priest forever, is present among you. In the ministry of the bishop, Christ himself continues to proclaim the word of God and to unfold the mysteries of faith to those who believe. And now he speaks specifically to the Archbishop-elect. You, beloved brother, have been chosen by the Lord. Reflect on the fact that you have been taken from among men and appointed to act for men in their relations with God. The title of bishop derives not from his rank, but from his duty. And it is the part of a bishop to serve rather than to rule. Such is the counsel of the master that the most important should behave as if he were the least and the leader as if he were the one who serves. Proclaim the message, whether it be welcome or unwelcome. Correct error with the greatest patience and in a spirit of teaching. Make it your business to pray and to offer sacrifice for the people committed to your care. And so, draw every kind of grace for them from the overflowing holiness of Christ. As a steward of the mysteries of Christ in the church assigned to you, be a faithful supervisor and guardian. Since you are chosen by the Father to rule over his family, be mindful always of the good shepherd who knows his sheep and is known by them and who did not hesitate to lay down his life for his sheep. Love with the charity of a father and a brother all those whom God places in your care. The priests and deacons who are partners with you in the ministry of Christ, the poor and the infirm as well, and also 
strangers and aliens. Encourage the faithful to work with you in your apostolic task and do not refuse to listen to them willingly. Never relax in your concern for those who do not belong as yet to the one fold of Christ, since they are commended to you in the Lord. Never forget that the Catholic Church is made one by the bond of charity and that you are joined to the collegiate body of bishops. You will consequently maintain a deep concern for all the churches and gladly come to the aid and support of churches in need. Give your attention, therefore, to the whole flock in which the Holy Spirit appoints you an overseer of the assembly of God. In the name of the Father, whose image you personify in the church, in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, whose triple role of teacher, priest, and pastor you undertake, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, who gives life to the Church of Christ and supports our weakness with his power. An old age custom of the Fathers decrees that a bishop-elect is to be questioned before the people on his resolve to keep the faith and discharge his duties. Beloved brother, are you resolved by the grace of the Holy Spirit to discharge at the end of your life the office entrusted to us by the apostles, which is about to be passed on to you by the imposition of our hands? I am. Are you resolved to be faithful and constant in proclaiming the gospel of Christ? I am. Are you resolved to maintain the content of faith, entire and uncorrupted, as handed down by the apostles and professed by the church at all times and places? I am. Are you resolved to build up the church as the body of Christ and to remain united to it by your link with the order of bishops under the authority of the successor of St. Peter the Apostle. I am. Are you resolved to be loyal in your obedience to the successor of St. Peter the Apostle? I am. Are you resolved as a devoted father to sustain the people of God in cooperation with the priests and deacons who share your ministry and to guide them in the way of salvation? I am. Are you resolved to show kindness and compassion in the name of the Lord to the poor and to strangers and to all who are in need? I am. Are you resolved as a good shepherd to seek out the sheep who stray and to gather them into the fold of the Lord? I am. Are you resolved to pray without ceasing for the people of God and to carry out the highest duties of the priesthood in such a way as to afford no grounds for reproof. I am with the help of God. May God, who began the good work in you, bring it to fulfillment. Beloved, let us pray for this, for this man chosen to provide for the needs of the church. Let us pray that Almighty God in his goodness 
will fill him with abundant grace. Let us kneel. The litany is then recited, including a special invocation to the saints of the local church, the church of Irla, Jarlath of Chuham. Saint Jarlath of Chuham, Saint Enda of Aran, Saint Fahim of Kong, Saint Benan of Kilbannon, Saint Forze of Kilorsa, all men and women, saints of God, Lord, spare us. And at the end of the litany, three special invocations on behalf of the Archbishop-elect. Bless this chosen one. Bless and make holy this chosen one. Bless, make holy, and consecrate this chosen one. Jesus, Son of the living God, Christ, hear us. Lord God, listen to our prayers. Send this your servant the fullness of priestly grace and fill him with your powerful blessing through Christ our Lord. Now follows what by biblical warrant and the continuing tradition of the church is the core of the rite of ordination to the order of bishops as it is to the order of priests and the order of deacons. To quote the rubric, the principal consecrator lays his hands upon the head of the bishop-elect. After him, the consecrating bishops do the same. And so, in Tuam last Monday, the priest, Joseph Conan, was made a bishop by the imposition of hands, first by his predecessor, then by the Archbishop of Cashel and the Bishop of Conroy, and then by all the other Irish members present of the Episcopal College, beginning with the Cardinal Archbishop of Armagh. And to quote the rubric again, the principal consecrator now places the open book of Gospels upon the head of the bishop-elect. Two deacons standing at either side hold the book of Gospels above his head during the prayer of consecration. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, merciful God, bringing comfort to all. From your heavenly home, you look with care on the lowest of your creatures, knowing all things even before they come to be. Your life-giving revelation has laid down rules for your church, the just people of Abraham, upon whom you have set your mark from the beginning. In that church, you have established a government and priesthood so as not to leave your sanctuary without its liturgy. And from the beginning of the world, it has pleased you to be glorified by the ministers whom you have chosen. Now pour out upon this chosen one that power which flows from you, the perfect spirit whom you give to your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, the spirit whom he gave to the apostles, who established the church in every place as the sanctuary where your name would always be praised and glorified. Father, you know what is in every heart. Inspire the heart of your servant, whom you have chosen to make a bishop. 
May he feed your holy flock and exercise the high priesthood without blame, ministering to you day and night to reconcile us with you and to offer the gifts of your church. By the spirit of this priesthood, may he have the power to forgive sins as you commanded. May he assign the duties of the flock according to your will and loose every bond by the power you give the apostles. May his gentleness and singleness of purpose stand before you as an offering through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him, glory and power and honor are yours with the Holy Spirit in the church now and forever. Amen. Amen. And now the principal consecrator takes the holy chrism and anoints the head of the new bishop who kneels before him. God has made you a share in Christ's priesthood. May he pour upon you this oil of mystical anointing and make you faithful with spiritual blessings. The book of Gospels is now given to the new bishop. Receive the gospel and preach the word of God, always teaching with the greatest patience. Now follows the investiture with ring, mitre and staff. Archbishop Walsh places the ring on the ring finger of his successor's right hand. Take this ring as a seal of faith. Keeping faith, guard and protect Holy Church, which is the bride of God. He places the mitre on Archbishop Cunyon's head and gives him his pastoral staff. Take the staff as a sign of the shepherd's office and watch over all this flock to which the Holy Spirit has assigned you as bishop to govern the Church of God. Archbishop Walsh leads his successor to the Episcopal chair, the chair of Jarlath. The newly consecrated bishop lays aside his staff and receives the kiss of peace from his brother bishops.
the ordination rite proper is complete. Not the least striking moment was when Archbishop Conan, seated in his chair, received the fraternal kiss from Bishop Butler, whose diocesan care in the Church of Ireland includes the Sea of Tume. It was a meaningful symbol of Christian unity. The liturgy of the Eucharist follows. Now the President of the Assembly is the new Archbishop, concelebrating with his predecessor and fellow bishops, as well as five priests, including his own brothers and classmates. After the Eucharistic prayer, the communion rite is celebrated in Irish, and Archbishop Conan introduces the Lord's Prayer.
simple beauty of the liturgy and its welding together of Irish tradition with that of the universal church made a deep impression on all who took part. A young scripture scholar, priest of the Archdiocese, Father Sean Frayne, reflects on this. I suppose we could describe it all, really, as the Church of Chuam celebrating. This was altogether appropriate, I feel, because Dr. Cunyan's theological writings over the past number of years have been largely concerned with two particular areas. The first, the theology of the local church. And the second, the meaning and significance of the liturgy and the life of that church. And I suppose one feels and hopes that these two aspects of his interests will dominate and determine the, his episcopacy in Chum. Certainly there was a local flavour about it all anyhow. There was the Connacht Irish, the saints of the diocese men mentioned in the Litany of Saints, the Bishop of Chum consecrating his successor. Even one of the co-consecrators, Dr. Fergus, was a Chum priest. You had the lay representatives from all the parishes, together with the clergy of the diocese making the bulk of the congregation. Well, all this local flavour and colouring of the event was no kind, no cheap provincialism. Rather, it reflects a very definite theological direction given to the Church since Vatican II. We have come to realise that the local Church, centred around its bishop, is the image of the Church universal, or at least should be. We have come to appreciate the deep theology that St. Paul intended when he spoke of the Church of God that is in Corinth, for example. But it is only rarely, as on occasions like last Monday, that one begins to see this theology of the local church operating in practice. The Council also tells us <clears throat> that the liturgy should be both creative and expressive of the true, true reality of the church. Again, it is all too seldom we find the liturgy exercising this genuinely creative role in the life of the Church. And I suspect that the reason for this is because it is not sufficiently adapted to the local needs. In Monday's ceremony, there was a quality of genuineness and suitability to the event. And as well, there was a sense of participation and celebration by the whole congregation. This showed how vital a living liturgy can be in the task of building up a Christian community once that liturgy is celebrated, that is, made the occasion and expression of a joyful assembly of the Christian people.
another element of Christian tradition was added when, at the end of Mass, Martin Luther's great hymn was sung as Archbishop Cognon was led by his predecessor through the cathedral, blessing the congregation. Turn to the sanctuary, the new Archbishop prays. A hearne dear, Bidanian to a near the winter, Le Kinaltus, Augustrilian to Eid Le Graw, To Erinish, Spirit Dagna, Doebsha, Will Tagus Query, Augustia, the Hedian Tagatil, Comedi and Trade in Nifort, Anaskanyantar Div, Luhair Hiri, a Dredica. Amen. In your power, you allot us the number of our days and the measure of our years. Look favorably upon the service we humbly perform and give perfect, lasting peace in our time. Amen. May those you have raised to the order of bishop please you in the performance of their office. May the clergy and people come to love them affectionately so that the shepherd may not be without the support of his flock or the flock without the loving concern of its shepherd. Amen. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. is ended. People and clergy go out from the cathedral and the new archbishop also goes out to take up the daily round of the new life which as Father McGarry says he must now live for his people. <laughs>
Now, there's no pattern, really, for a bishop. There's no horarium that sets out the life uh, design for the perfect bishop's day. It would be a naive thing to uh, think that there ever could be. Because region differs from region. And an archbishop in the west of Ireland will have a different task from an archbishop, say, in the Sea of Dublin or in Belfast or elsewhere. And uh, this particular see of Chum has got a, a distinguished tradition of archbishops who care greatly for the people. Archbishop's Kanyan will be the problems of his people as they are today. And this difference of church from church uh, is important to understand. Really, I think for the f first time with great clarity and emphasis, it has been acknowledged in the Vatican Council as a contributing force to the life of the church, this very variety. We see how, for instance, the Irish contribution through the circumstances of the famine and through other things and through our own tenacity that history taught us has contributed something within a larger arena of the English language world. Now, I think in the same way that Archbishop Cunyan will be concerned about the problems of his people, a bishop must, of course, have exact and close information about the true state of affairs. Perhaps we have all been to blame in this respect that we have been, um, we have been insufficiently informed. We're making large presumptions about people, their faith, their problems, their understanding of the liturgy, whatever. We must be uh, ruthlessly honest with ourselves in finding out, because it's only on the basis of exact information that a bishop or indeed that any priest can help people. We must reach them where they are. So, if I may come back to the remark of Bishop Emmett Carter, that about the stroke of the pen, a bishop ten years ago could have done a lot of things with the stroke of a pen that he cannot do today. It is a more laborious and more exacting life, but I think its fruit will be that a bishop will be more clearly a principle, not merely of government, but of growth and of unity, and that he will involve his people, thereby at the expense of his own effort and energies in the life of the church. Father Sean Frayne refers us again to the way in which Archbishop Walsh handed over his office to his successor and installed him in his chair, his cathedra. I feel that we should speak of handing over of an office rather than retiring from an office. Because this idea of retirement seems to me to be theologically inaccurate. It suggests leaving the scene, becoming passive, and so on. But there can be no question of an office holder who has handed over his office becoming a passive member of the local church. Rather, the act of Dr. Walsh and his continued presence in the community is a living witness to a genuine aspect of the church as the people of God, in which Christian vocation precedes the holding of a particular ministry. Again, it is an aspect of the church that is emphasized very much in Vatican II. And it seems to me that it is very well underlined in this act of handing over of an office to another member of the community. For too long, I think we have tended to identify the church with its office holders. 
and one could visualize it becoming a more frequent occurrence in the life of the church, as the whole community comes to understand more clearly its own vocation and the meaning and role of office for its life. With such a growing awareness, one can see office holders who have given of their own personal gifts and qualities to the office in question, feeling that with the changing life of the community, the office needs other qualities than theirs if it is to continue to be the vital service for the life of the community that Christ intended it to be. Indeed, it strikes me that this may be one way of solving the so-called tension between the charismatic and institutional church that we hear so much about today. I should like to end this consideration of the making of a bishop with a word from Archbishop Cunyan himself as he spoke to us on Monday. I asked him, did he think of his new life as a lonely one, his task as a lonely task? Well, Sean, there is a certain amount of loneliness associated with a bishop's office, just the same as there is with a priest's. A priest or a bishop is, and must always remain in a certain sense, a part. But if you mean by loneliness that uh, I should have no further contact with people, that I should have no uh, heart-to-heart talk with people, that I shouldn't be able to talk straight to them and they to me, then I would not like it to become a lonely job. I would not like it to become uh, an isolated life. Uh, A good deal of this, of course, depends on the people as much as on the bishop. Quite a number of people force the bishop into isolation by refusing to treat him as an ordinary man with an ordinary man's uh, failings as well as his virtues, a man who likes to talk to people and likes to hear people talk, man who is interested in what people think. Uh, Some people force the bishop into isolation by refusing to talk quite plainly to him. I do hope that in these times it will be possible for me as a bishop, as far as possible for either priest or bishop, to uh, not become isolated, to remain in contact with people. Wonder, does that answer your question? Well, would you uh, apply that to the actual exercise of the office itself? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, uh, do you mean uh, that I should uh, consult with people in the exercise of the office, remain in contact with people? If that's what you mean, I would certainly hope, because no one man can do this job of a bishop, I think. He needs the help of his priests, first of all, And he also needs the help, the advice, the counsel of his lay people. Uh, He needs expert advice from the experts among his people. He needs the honest opinions of those who are not experts, but who are the people of God and who are interested in religion, interested that the message of God should come to them as clearly as possible through their bishop and their priests. Now, do you think that the present structures, to use the modish word, are sufficient for ensuring that that will happen? I don't think so. I think we do need some structures to set up a system of communication, to use another modish word, uh, a system of contact between uh, bishop, priests and people. What I have in mind uh, is this question of parish councils, for instance, a pastoral council for the diocese, 
which would include, include uh, uh, priests and lay people. Uh, I would be very anxious to have the advice of people at all stages, but uh, there's one point I would like to emphasize, if I may, that seeking advice does not always mean uh, acting on that advice or accepting that advice. People must be prepared to give advice and to have the bishop in the end and the diocese make the decisions. Somebody must be a decision maker. And if everybody who advises for the priest or bishop expects him to follow this advice always, then the whole system is stultified. Looking outward now from the diocese itself, do you regard this diocese, this church of Tuam, as very much part of the Irish church, which it obviously is, but do you feel that in the life of the Irish church, uh, the, what, what this local church has to offer is important? Yes, I think this is true of every diocese and, of course, of the diocese of Tuam. I do think that Tuam has peculiar problems of its own because any plans for the future, for the life of the church in the future in Tuam, uh, must, like plans for the church everywhere, be based on the existence of a healthy uh, community, uh, a community that is viable economically, that is happy socially, you cannot have a healthy church unless you already have a happy community, a happy society on which it is based. Now, unfortunately, the west of Ireland, and um, particularly some of the districts in the Diocese of Tume, have economic problems, social problems, which make a community life very difficult. Tume then has its own special problems, but I would hope that uh, Tume the Archdiocese of Tune would be able to make a very significant contribution to the church in Ireland in the future. Uh, Cantor and Willem Gaeger, Rahang and Ignatini, Cantor Bocht and Quitus Moldia, Agus Ta Fibernick, as Kishin if a leh bunch less shah, Achni Doilem Kurby, Gernanje and Giffrey, Gernanje Gahi, Huidskin Fobble, Boilem Yapogam Hilligan as in Diosia, and Nan, Agus Killa Haggat, Morwar, and Nan. On Gwelia Lodge, the winter August, Agus Jerthar <laughs> Nakulmijaka Tossi er 
Egendalen, und Freien, Nagelische Nähren. Was tun wir dann? Was wir Kindchen, Nier mit Jachetasse, was ich nicht wissen kann, ja, kaufen wir die Doll. In Ihren Namen, 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 in